Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a True Crime podcast. I'm Bethan and this is Steph. Hiya. This week Steph is joining me. She's one of my best friends and has supported me and been a patron supporter of the show since the very beginning, almost four years ago. Um, Obviously Mark is on holiday, as we all know. I'm sure he's away more than he's here. So Steph's joining me. And so to begin with, Steph, what fascinates you about true crime and true crime podcasts? There is so much that fascinates me. But I mean, this case is the main reason I got into true crime, because the depravity of some human scares yet intrigues me. But I always feel for the victims how awful it is that their lives are cut short, their families, how tough it must be to continue on without them. But what always gets to me is the media how it's all about the killer, abductor and so on, and how quick they are to dismiss the victims. Oh, I completely agree. This is something we've talked about loads on the show and why, whilst we do joke about it a bit, I always feel the need to kind of end my episodes with discussing the victim, their impact, something from their family. Um, I know we sometimes say like, oh, it's such a Bethan way to finish, but I genuinely hate how the names of the perpetrators are remembered more than the victims quite often. So this week we're going to be discussing a case which is really close to Steph's heart and probably one that most of our UK listeners remember quite clearly. We're going to be talking about the murders of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. Steph, you chose this very specifically and we have spoken at length about this case. Can you tell the listeners why this case? Well, it's been nearly 20 years. This case still haunts me and will not leave my memories. In August of 2002, I was only 13 by about four months. Less than a year before this, my childhood innocence had been rocked by 9-11 and I understood there was evil in the world, but it was out there, not at home, not England and not the Canary Islands where I lived at the time of the Twin Towers crashing down. 2002, I was a fresh teenager, 13, world at my feet. I knew everything and was totally safe. I spent half my summer holidays in England with friends, going shopping, going to the nappy nights at the local club. August of 2002 just opened my eyes to the world. I remember all the news coverage, the articles and how worried my mum was for me. Suddenly I had to let her know where I was every second and who I was with. And I think it's really interesting to think about those cases that have had such an impact on us. Like we've talked before, haven't we, the fact that Christopher Halliwell abducted and murdered Shana Callahan at a time when we both lived locally and we were of a similar age to her. Yeah, I remember that one. You know, that was a club I used to go to. I used to live in Old Town. It's just crazy, you know, how close that one became. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the same for this case, really. I mean, when the murderer was arrested and charged, this made me realize that it didn't matter what trusted position of power adults were in. They could hurt people, children, and that no one was safe. But exactly, as you said before, I also remember how quickly everything was about the killer and his girlfriend The national news didn't really cover how the families were coping. This led me to buy the book Goodbye Dearest Holly by her father Kevin Wells when it was released in 2005. I wanted to know how a family could ever possibly cope with life after a horrific murder like this. Yeah, I completely agree. It's so important to remember that the families are left behind and to see the case from their side and actually to remember the victims as their families want us to. And I remember you lent me that book. It's really, really moving He spoke of her fun-loving innocence and it's kind of heartbreaking to just know that that innocence was then just snatched away. Totally agree. So before we start, we're going to say a huge thank you to our newest patron supporters. Now, last week, I'm pretty sure I said Clara. So Kiara Backshaw, thank you. Alice Breen, Paula Clark, Robin Hawes, 
Alex, John Lennigan and Laura. Thank you so much, everybody, for your Patreon support. And if you want to find out more, head to patreon.com forward slash seeingredpodcast. Jessica Chapman was 10 years old at the time of this week's case. She lived with her parents, Leslie and Sharon, and was the youngest of three sisters. The family had lived in Soham for about 10 years, and they were well-liked in the town, although they did tend to keep themselves to themselves. Her best friend, Holly Wells, was also 10 years old. Her parents, Kevin and Nicola, had lived their whole lives in Soham, and Holly had an older brother. The Wells family were surrounded by an extended family support network, as well as numerous friends, and the family was also well-liked in the community. They were often at the centre of local events, they were members of their church congregation, and although they were affluent, they never looked down on other people. People just described them as down-to-earth. The girls had first met at just four years old in nursery, and they'd remained close ever since. Described as being like sisters, the girls grew up together, and their homes were just a 5 minutes walk from each other. Both girls' mums were teaching support staff at their school, so they were colleagues and friends as well. Holly and Jessica both did well in school. They were bright and engaged in their work, received praise from their teachers and seem, from reports, to have really enjoyed and flourished at school. Both girls were sensible. Jessica had a mobile phone, which she would ring her mum from numerous times if she was out by herself, and she had a small list of places she could go without parental supervision. Holly's house was on this list, and she followed these rules. On the 4th of August 2002, just before midday, Jessica headed from her house to Holly's house for a barbecue. The pair were excited to meet up. Jessica had just gotten home from a two-week family holiday and had brought back a necklace engraved with the letter H that she had purchased for Holly that she was excited to give her. As was normal, she rang her mum to let her know she was at Holly's, as well as another call later on too. Holly was also a sensible girl. She had a small list of places she could go to on her own, and she would also make sure her parents knew where she was. Her aunt described her by saying that even if she was going to be just a minute late, she would phone home to say so. The girls were very different. Jessica was more of a tomboy. She liked to play sports and took part in numerous activities, sometimes competing and doing really well in the competitions. And she tended to wear tracksuits or t-shirts and jeans rather than pretty dresses. Holly, on the other hand, loved to be girly. She dressed in a more feminine style and she'd also begun playing around with makeup. She had been a majorette and although she didn't play as much sport as her friend, she was also interested in football and she was a good swimmer. The pair both loved the football team Man United and idolised David Beckham. They were both polite, well-mannered girls and they were known locally for being respectful and friendly. On the 4th of August at the barbecue, the girls were in a great mood. Finally reunited after Jessica's family holiday away, they had loads to discuss. Jessica's holiday, of course, and Holly's school summer holiday fun, sleepovers, shopping trips with friends, and they had a friend join them who headed off a little bit later, so the three of them were chatting. And whilst the adults, Holly's parents and their friends Rob and Trudy were outside at the barbecue, the girls spent most of their afternoon in Holly's bedroom. Shortly after 5pm, they popped out to join the party, and as was so often the case with these best friends, they were wearing the same outfit. Jessica had borrowed Holly's brother's football kit so the pair could match in David Beckham red outfits. Mum Nicola got the girls to pose side by side for a photograph. This photograph was to be the last one taken of these best friends. Just after half five, the girls decided to leave the house. They chose to head over to the local sports centre half a mile away to buy sweets, something they'd done many times before. They were in no hurry, seen on CCTV, wandering along, taking their time, arm in arm, as best friends do. 
It was a beautiful summer's evening and they made their way along towards their school. Heading onto the school grounds, they made their way behind the school towards the caretaker's house. By now, it was around half past six. Unfortunately, the girls were not seen alive again. Nicola went to go and find the girls at around 8pm, but they were not in Holly's bedroom as she expected. It was a sudden change in mood after the fun, relaxed day, and she and Kevin rushed around searching, heading out onto the nearby streets. Holly had a half past eight curfew, and when her parents phoned her mobile, they realised that it was still at home. She hadn't taken it with her. Nicola rang the Chapman home to see if perhaps the girls had gone there, but instead she spoke to Leslie and Sharon, who confirmed the girls were not there and hadn't been all afternoon. The concern grew when a call to Jessica's mobile couldn't connect, and the four parents frantically searched the local area in their cars and on foot, stopping anyone they saw. After an hour of this, Holly and Jessica were reported missing to the police. It was now nearly 10pm and officers arrived within 10 minutes of the parents' frantic call and teams were mobilised to interview anyone. One of the girls' closest friends was actually awoken at 2am by officers asking for places that they could have been playing, hiding or injured, but there was no sight of them anywhere. And cell site information didn't help much either. The girls had vanished. The police immediately launched a search for the missing girls. House-to-house inquiries were conducted and searches led by the police, which included local volunteers, were undertaken in the surrounding area. The photo that Nicola Wells had taken of the girls in their football shirts was released. And this photo is probably one anyone familiar with the case here in the UK will recognise. I'm sure you agree, Steph. It's infamous, isn't it, that photograph? Everyone knows that photo. Mm -hmm. Descriptions were circulated and the girls' parents repeated that their daughters had been wary of talking with strangers. Local registered sex offenders were investigated and ruled out. Reconstructions were televised. CCTV of the girls' final known movements was broadcast. And both sets of parents took part in interviews and appeals. But despite the painstaking efforts of the police, the girls were not found until 13 days later. It was on the 17th of August when a local gameskeeper called Keith and two friends investigated an awful smell on the way to feed Keith's pheasants in an isolated area 10 miles out of Selham. Keith wanted to investigate, and he and Adrian made their way towards a five-foot-deep irrigation ditch. Here they discovered two bodies, a sight they would never recover from. They told their friend she should wait in the car and not look, and then immediately phoned the police to report the awful discovery. Keith found it a traumatic time to talk about, even to this day, and his walks to feed his birds were a horrific daily reminder for him. Both of the corpses, which had been lain side by side, were in an advanced state of decomposition and had been burned, in an apparent effort to destroy forensic evidence. The murderer, or murderers, had attempted to burn both bodies. The bodies were confirmed to be Holly and Jessica, and investigators could tell the girls had not died at this location. The formal inquest was therefore held on the 23rd of August. The coroner testified that as the bodies of both girls were partially skeletonised, that no precise cause of death could be determined for either of them, but that the most likely cause of death of both girls had been asphyxiation. It was also on the 17th of August that the police made two arrests. Shortly before the bodies of the girls were discovered, police announced that they had arrested a man on suspicion of the abduction and murder of Holly and Jessica, and a woman on suspicion of murder. And then the bodies were recovered, and the belief of the police that the two girls were dead was confirmed. The man and woman who had been arrested were Ian Huntley and Maxine Carr. So what had gotten the police to this point? 
Well, back on the 5th of August, Ian Huntley had informed investigators that he'd seen the girls the evening they vanished. He said he'd spoken to them on his doorstep. Both girls had appeared happy and jovial. They wanted to ask him about his girlfriend and her recent application for a permanent job at the school. Because yes, as the girls' parents had stated, Holly and Jessica were not the type to go off or chat with strangers. This was no stranger to them. He was the caretaker at their school. The parents were aware of him, and Kevin, Holly's dad, had even met Huntley and knew him as Ian after he'd spent time there when his cleaning company got a contract to clean the school. Huntley's girlfriend, Maxine Carr, was working in a temporary position as a teaching assistant at the school. She was someone that Jessica described as the best teacher she'd ever had, and cool. Jessica was not alone in this. Carr was an incredibly popular teacher at the school, and as both girls' mums also worked at the school, they'd see her on an almost daily basis. Huntley told the police that he had told the girls that sadly Carr had been unsuccessful in her job application and she wasn't feeling great, so they'd replied, tell her we're so sorry, and then they'd set off along College Street in the direction of a bridge leading towards Clay Street. Whilst he was forthcoming with this information, police were immediately suspicious of Huntley and his demeanour. His house was searched, and whilst there was nothing incriminating found, the police thought it was really strange that there was washing on the line despite it having rained, and that the house had been extensively cleaned, as well as the dodgy vibes they just picked up on him. They were suspicious of this man who looked like he hadn't slept. He had clammy hands. He was agitated. He spoke of his girlfriend who had been inside at the time of him talking to the girls and Carr corroborated this, later saying she was in the bath when they stopped by and I only wish we had asked them where they were going. If only we knew then what we know now, then we could have stopped them or done something about it. As the days and searches went on, Huntley became a sort of spokesman to the media about the case, sharing his dismay at realising he had probably been the last person to see the girls, discussing how tragic the case was, being front and centre of the media too. And his explanation for this was that he wanted to convey to the media the frustration and despair that the community were feeling. In one interview, he claimed to be holding on to a glimmer of hope that the girls would be found safe and well, and he took part in numerous searches, just feet from the terrified parents. But secretly, he had been working hard to cover his tracks and to hide the truth. He had indeed been the last person to see the girls alive, and the police were right to be suspicious. He had indeed been the murderer. It is the knowledge of just how close to the families Huntley and Carl were that hit home to me with this case. The fact that the pair had jobs within the school Holly and Jessica attended. The fact that they'd even crossed paths with the girls' parents. They were in positions of responsibility within the community. They were trusted and respected and broke this trust in the most abhorrent way possible. I think that is possibly what is the worst part about this case for me is that these girls knew him and chatted to him. Yeah, that's the main thing that stuck with me with yeah. them as well. You know, they trusted him. Mm-hmm. And the community trusted him as well. Exactly. It's just scary to think mm-hmm. someone so trusted could do something so horrible. Yeah. This was an entirely opportunistic killing. Huntley saw the two walk in alone and vulnerable and decided to take a chance. He lured the girls into his home on some sort of pretext, perhaps using his girlfriend as a reason to invite them in. It would make sense that his lie about the conversation he'd had with Holly and Jessica may be based in fact. Perhaps they had asked after Carr and he had invited them in saying they could speak to her. But the girls weren't headed into the home of some innocent caretaker. No. They were entering the home of a sadistic paedophile who got his frills from control, rape and abuse. And Maxine Carr was not home, just Huntley. What happened inside the house is not clear, but it is the general consensus that Huntley was attempting to get the girls drunk, 
or had attempted to drug them, and at one point he made a grab for one of the girls before a struggle ensued and they were killed. Huntley is known for lying, but the lies often had elements of truth in them. So from the stories he put forward, investigators were unable to uncover the most likely series of events that night. So Huntley had said that Holly had accidentally drowned in the bath after having a nosebleed and that he'd accidentally killed Jessica whilst trying to cover her mouth to stop her screaming. So police surmised that he had killed Holly first and that this was likely by strangulation and then Jessica by holding a hand over her nose and her mouth. The girls fought back and one of them gave Huntley a nasty scratch along his cheek. The fact that the house had been so carefully cleaned suggested to investigators that there had been blood spatter and the police are convinced that he hadn't stabbed or beaten the girls with an object, nor do they think that this was a pre-planned attack where he had a weapon to hand. They are pretty certain the girls were not raped, although once they were dead, Ian Huntley did lay them upstairs on his bed and the police then kind of linked all of the evidence from within the home and his it was really hard because they didn't have very much at all. They used everything from the autopsies and the post-mortem, everything from within the house. And then his like bundle of lies stories. And then kind of were like, here's what we can basically put together. I know it's so sad to not have the full knowledge of what happened. Just if, you know, it might help. For a bit of closure, yeah, isn't it? it might help for closure. Mm-hmm. It's mad. And it's just frustrating that he just wouldn't say anything. <laughs> Just come on, you've, you've been caught now, just tell us. Exactly. It's not going to, you know, harm your case at this point. So Huntley then removed the girls' clothes, laid the girls' bodies in the bath and cleaned them before drying them and dressing them again. And he methodically cleaned the house. Whilst the attack was certainly not pre-planned, his actions after the murder absolutely were. And once he'd stripped his dining room, telling people later that he was de- decorating, he was actually hiding the evidence he set about deciding where to dispose of the girls' bodies. As I said, the murders were probably not pre-planned. It's pretty guaranteed they were not, and perhaps they were an accident that shocked Huntley, but his violent actions that caused the death were nothing new. The school had employed Huntley after doing checks on his name, and also the name that he went by, which was his middle name and surname, and they found nothing. But this was only because he hadn't been convicted of anything previously, and the one time an arrest had been made, he'd been cleared. The real backstory of Ian Huntley is terrifying, and one that, had the school been aware, would have meant that he'd never been employed as a school caretaker. From a young age, he enjoyed torturing small animals, and I promised Steph nothing about dogs for this episode, so I'm not going to go into any more detail here. Greatly appreciate it. Yeah, I'm sure you can work it out, or you can go and Google if you guys want to know more about what he did in his teens. He also liked to be dominant sexually, and whilst he hadn't been convicted of this... He did rape a number of women. He liked younger girls and younger women, and he raped teenage girls. And again, there's no convictions. But at the age of 18, he forced himself on a 12-year-old. When he was 20, he locked an 11-year-old in his room and tried to coerce her, but only let her go because he was really scared that a neighbour was going to hear her screaming. And there's numerous anecdotal stories from women who suffered at his hands. Once he was in relationships with women, he was abusive, he beat them, and he dominated them in any way he could. He had a previous marriage, but it didn't last long due to his physical abuse, and he loved to humiliate women. One story was that he would ring Maxine Carr when he was at work and put the call on speakerphone so everyone at work could hear him yelling at her and degrading her, followed by her apologising to him, saying she loved and needed him. It's just so wrong. I can't believe how many people are out there like this. Not just men, there are some women mm-hmm. too. They just keep getting away with it. 
I feel so sorry for the victims and the fact that they don't feel like they can speak up. Yeah. It's a it's a really interesting kind of side to this case that we'll get into a bit later with kind of is Maxine Carr one of his victims too? I mean, she was as in from physical and emotional abuse, but at the time of the murders potentially as well. You could perhaps think that she was one of his victims too. Very true. There's so much speculation that we could go into there as mm. well. So there's many, many stories of him and his awful behaviour towards women. On one occasion, he kept a 16-year-old girl captive for two weeks, starving her to the point where she was admitted to hospital with dehydration and malnourishment, as well as the mental scars that that left on her. And it makes sense that perhaps this was the reason he lured Holly and Jessica into his home. One horrific rape case was taken to the police, and it went all the way to court before being dropped. The poor woman who accused him not only physically beaten and hurt, but also left mentally scarred with no justice. And he was known in one job as the factory sex pest. It was the fact that Huntley had been caught for this rape, although he had frustratingly walked free, that investigators believe he was really careful about clearing up after murdering the 10-year-olds. And he put so much thought into where to dispose the bodies and how. He not only put them in water in a secluded spot, but after realising his DNA may well still be found on them, he returned to the girls' bodies, covered them in petrol and set fire to them. He had removed their clothes on that first occasion and returned home with them and attempted to burn them as well. Huntley convinced Carr to lie to the police with him and give them his alibi, saying that she had been home in the bath when the girls had spoken to Huntley and clarified that he had only spoken to them for a short time before they headed off. But she actually hadn't even been home at this time. When she returned, the pair showed a united front, giving interviews and talking to the press. Carr gave herself away a little when she referred to Holly Wells in the past tense, saying, She was just lovely, really lovely. She also made an appeal, saying, Just get on the phone and just come home. Or if somebody's got them, just let them go. Ian Huntley changed his car tyres, knowing there was the potential that his car had left tracks when he left the girls' bodies, and he continued to keep up appearances. He was sure he had gotten away with this, but the police had been apprehensive of him and his story from very early on, and their suspicions were mounting. The scratch on his face, his questions to police about DNA and forensics, his comments about how he must have been one of the last to see the girls. How would he have known? It was all circumstantial, but still, it piqued the police's interest. It wasn't long before Maxine's alibi about being home was easily disproved by people who had seen her on a night out in Grimsby at the time, and the couple's interviews were analysed and picked apart by body language and behaviour experts. Jessica's phone's last ping was an area that included the caretaker's home and the police discovered sex offender Huntley's past, the rape charge. Have you seen much about the interview where Maxine was basically, she kept on referring to the girls in the past tense and the interviewer had to stop and had to be like, can you stop doing that? Because we don't know if they're dead or not. And then she was like, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. So they start the interview again and ask the same questions and she manages to say she is or they are and then slowly slips back into it and starts referring to the past tense again. That's just crazy. Mm-hmm. No, I, I I always struggle to focus on Huntley and Cara yeah. in this one. It, that's not what yelled at me so mm-hmm. much about this case. So I, yeah. I've missed that interview. It's, a, it's just, it really does show that potentially she knew a lot more than what she lets on. I don't know for definite, but it's feel, a weird, weird thing, isn't it? I feel as though she knew an awful lot more than she ever let on, yeah. Huntley had also begun to lose weight and was displaying visible symptoms of insomnia and he was prescribed antidepressants by his doctor to help with his erratic behaviour and distress. 
The pair were interviewed by the police on the 16th of August and at the same time the police searched their home and the buildings on the school grounds. Some of the items recovered included items of clothing that girls were wearing when they were last seen, including the charred and cut-up Manchester United shirts, and fibres recovered upon these items proved to be a precise match to samples retrieved from Huntley's body and clothing, as well as from his house. His fingerprints were recovered from the bin liner that had been used to cover the clothing and trainers that the police now knew had belonged to Holly and Jessica, and his car, although it had been cleaned recently, had traces of a distinctive mixture of brick dust, chalk and concrete – and a cover from the rear seat was missing, the lining of the boot had been recently removed, and this lining in the boot had been replaced with an ill-fitting section of household carpet. The pair were arrested the following day, and it was this same day when the girls' bodies were discovered just hours after police announced that they'd made the arrests. And that distinctive mixture that they found then matched to where the bodies were found so it was another link that kind of tied it all together for him this is why forensics is so interesting mm-hmm. there's so many little things that people miss it's yeah. just so important definitely Huntley put on an act drooling and feigning mental illness something he'd done in the past on occasion to attempt to get away with things and he refused to answer any questions and the police referred him for a psychological evaluation Carr, on the other hand, quickly confessed to detectives that she had lied about her whereabouts and her partner's actions on the 4th of August. She explained this by saying that Huntley had told her that the girls had come into their home for him to help Holly, who had a nosebleed, but that the girls had left, and she said that he told her due to his previous rape charge, he thought he was going to be suspected, so they just lied so no one would think anything of it. Huntley was charged with two counts of murder on the 20th of August. Carr was charged with perverting the course of justice. And then she burst into tears when police informed her that they'd discovered the girls' bodies, that their clothing had been burned near to the home that she shared with Huntley, his fingerprints had been found. She was adamant that they had the wrong man, she was convinced of his innocence entirely, and refused to move from this position. And in fact, she kind of wrote to him and she stayed quite loyal to him all the way up until the trial, when she then wouldn't look at him and she kind of obviously realised. But For a long time, she really was convinced of this. And I reckon this is true. Personally, I think she was really blinded by Huntley and so under his influence after years of abuse and years of controlling behaviour. I think she genuinely believed that. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. I feel as though what's come across as like the coercion, mental abuse that she's suffered at his hands, that it really blinded her to how he truly was at points, how he could be. Mm Mm-hmm. And that maybe he really did do this and she just struggled to come to terms with that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I I still don't think she did the right thing, really, in sticking up for him and covering immediately on the alibi. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so much easier to be honest with the police with everything and let them clear you of it rather than tell them what you feel is a little white lie just to protect you because of a past charge. Yeah, exactly, because that's going to end up making you look way more guilty because you're acting suspiciously and you're lying just... Tell them your reasons for not wanting to come forward. And actually, this whole thing with the nosebleed and that the girls had left, that would have been quite easily proven exactly. if it had been true. You know, there was CCTV. Exactly, It yeah. was near a school that it was summer. There was bound to be someone looking out of a window. If it was true, that's all they needed to say. Yeah. But, you know, just trying to cover for him and go, oh, I was in the bath when... She knew she wasn't. She wasn't even in the same area. Yeah, exactly. It's ridiculous. And this is it. You know, the CCTV showed them getting all the way close to the school. It would have shown them leaving and going another direction if they'd had headed to the library like he tried to say. 
Exactly. She did. She shouldn't have felt like she needed to lie mm-hmm. just to cover for him. Yeah. Huntley was declared mentally fit to stand trial, and the trial of Ian Huntley for the murders of Jessica and Holly opened at the Old Bailey on the 5th of November 2003. He pled not guilty to two counts of murder. Maxine Carr was charged with two counts of assisting an offender, to which she pled not guilty, and one count of perverting the course of justice, to which she pled guilty. On the 1st of December, Huntley testified before the court in his own defence, and during this, he admitted the girls had died in his home, but it had all been an accident. He tried to say that he'd had a bathtub of water ready to wash his dog. Holly had fallen into this whilst trying to sort out her nosebleed. She'd drowned, and then Jessica, who'd witnessed the accident, began repeatedly screaming, oh my god, you pushed her, so he'd then accidentally suffocated her whilst he tried to stop her screaming. It's just a pathetic story and it's an uh, for me that feels like an insult to the girl's memories and to their family who are sat there listening to him talk shit basically yeah no i agree you know falling into a bathtub whilst trying to sort out a nosebleed and drowning no you're 10 years old you can sit up in a bathtub really easily my two and a half year old can yeah exactly Huntley insisted he'd been too worried about whether the police and public would believe that the girls' deaths had actually been accidental that he decided not to call 999 and had set about destroying any forensic evidence. Carr claimed that she had no knowledge of the deaths and that she had even tried to persuade Huntley to contact police and be open about his claims about the fact that he'd invited the children into his home so that Holly could staunch her nosebleed, but that he'd refused to do so as inviting children into their home had been a violation of the rules imposed by St Andrew's Primary School. She further explained her focus was to po- to kind of protect Huntley's job and his reputation. And she added, had she known of Huntley's actual guilt, she never would have been attempted to provide him with a false alibi. The jury deliberated for four days before reaching their verdicts. They returned a majority verdict of guilty on two counts of murder against Huntley, and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. The sentence was later clarified as life with a minimum of 40 years imprisonment. And this is a term that would not allow parole eligibility until 2042, which by that time, Huntley would be 68 years old. Although Carr willingly pleaded guilty to the charge of perverting the course of justice, she pleaded not guilty to the charge of assisting an offender. And the jury actually accepted her claims on this and they found her not guilty of assisting. She was sentenced to serve three and a half years in prison for perverting the course of justice. And on her release, she was granted lifelong anonymity and a new identity. And I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I feel like if this case was in court right now with what we know more about with coercive control and domestic abuse and gaslighting, the public's attitude to Ian Huntley and Maxine Carr was almost on par, wasn't it? It was equal for both of them. They were both classed as evil. She was absolutely hounded and that's why she needed this new identity and lifelong anonymity because she was in a lot of danger Do you think that now the public's opinion of her would be as savage as it was in 2002? I don't think it would have been as savage. Mm. I do feel as though with more knowledge around coercive control and the mental abuse aspect of it, Mm. that they might have been a little bit more forgiving. However, I am aware, obviously, I think it's only four people in the UK total that have ever been granted that lifelong anonymity. Mm -hmm. And I also know that there are innocent women out there that have been accused of being car and assaulted yeah which is also just so wrong yeah there's a there's a lot around this that it is interesting because it's only i say only but it's only 20 years ago but whether things would be very different i don't know it's a weird one isn't it things change a lot in 20 years Mm -hmm. 
and you know with mental health coming forward and being so much more open and more talked about as well I think that would have gone a long way in helping you know the the public's perspective on Carr yeah and the fact that she then may not have needed that lifelong anonymity mm-hmm. but it's a bit late now that's yeah not it change. is what it is everyone is set in their ways from that case from and people have years ago. people have long memories we we've shown that from the fact that this case still is one that hits us so exactly. yeah so the girls funerals were kept fiercely private and family centered and the media did as requested by the families not reporting on any of it until much later and even then with just a few lines of text david beckham the girls idol and the name on the back of the jerseys they wore in their final moments sent floral arrangements to both funerals from himself and Victoria. St Andrew's Church in Soham became a public place for grief, with flowers and cards and messages laid in the grounds from the moment the girls were found. People from all over the country and indeed from across the globe sent flowers and well wishes. There was a remembrance service held in Eli Cathedral, an opportunity for all who wanted to mourn the girls to join for what was described as a service of celebration and remembrance. More than 2,000 people took part. The families and members of the police were joined by friends, school staff and many people from the local community. There is so much more to this case, more in Huntley's depraved past, information available about his time incarcerated. But I wanted to end the episode by talking about the legacy of Holly and Jessica. So after the murders, a public inquiry was opened into the vetting systems used by police So Huntley's previous criminal complaints, his extensive record of sexual offences against underage girls and young women, were made public knowledge after his arrest, but they hadn't been accessible when his employer searched him during the recruitment process. So the inquiry recommended the implementation of a mandatory registration scheme for people working with children and vulnerable adults, such as the elderly or mentally handicapped, and this recommendation later led to the foundation of the Independent Safeguarding Authority. The findings also suggested a national system should be implemented for police forces to share intelligence information and that all police forces should follow a clear code of practice on record keeping. This resulted in the Police National Database, a system which allows organisations to share national intelligence and other information captured in local systems. So this has three strategic benefits, safeguarding children and vulnerable people, countering terrorism and preventing and disrupting serious and organised crime. And I think that's really important to focus on rather than almost like, well, how did he get that job? How did he get... Actually, after the fact, they, they've they put these things into place that now at least we know that our children would go to schools in a safe manner where the staff on site aren't hiding this horrible, horrible past. Exactly. At least they're not going to have the past. Uh, it's It's never mm. going to stop those that suddenly just flip and decide that they want to go and do something as horrendous as this. But it will stop those that have that past of the torturing animals, the the rape charges, the mm-hmm. accusations, the coercive control, mental abuse, all of that. It, it has now got a chance to stop that. Exactly. So there we go. What are your kind of final thoughts then, Steph, on this episode? Because it's a, it's a horrible one, isn't it? It's a really difficult one to kind of talk about. But I also think it's really important to remember those two smiling girls, Holly and Jessica, stood there in that photo just having a nice time as like as just besties, 10-year-olds. They exactly. should have had the world ahead of them. Uh, it's, I feel as though it's something that when someone hears about, it is something that will always stick with them. Mm-hmm. You know, I was um, talking about it at work the other day, actually, and the second I mentioned the Soham murders, 
you know the the lady I work with she was like oh don't my girls were the exact same age and I'm never gonna forget that Mm. and yeah you're right it is much better to remember those beautiful smiling faces of those two girls arm in arm in their Manchester United jerseys yeah just having a great day and just remember that Well, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. I've really enjoyed presenting it with you and I hope our listeners have enjoyed, we did it a slightly different way just for, why not? It's my show. Do what I want. Now do what I want to. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed it. Exactly. And thank you for inviting me to guest host this case with you today. It's been a whole new experience. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's been um, quite a lot of fun, actually. Good. I'm really Um, glad and hopefully... I mean, maybe people will like you more than Mark and we'll just get rid of him. You can do it again. Oh, yeah, but if you not? want to come back again, feel free. Oh, always. If everyone will uh, happily have me back, I'll come <laughs> back. Not a problem. So I was hoping that I could just finish off on the poem that Kevin Wells wrote for his daughter. It's something that I think is so beautiful. I'm going to read it as he wrote it. Your right to grow, to mature and play, so cruelly denied in a sinister way. Attentive and caring, a parent's delight but so young at heart, needing comfort at night. The garden's so quiet, the house is too, but pausing for a moment, we can still sense you. Your trust in nature and desire to please all, allow us, your family, to remain walking tall. Our memories now shared with the nation's hearts, small crumbs of comfort, now it is time to part. We will never forget you, heaven's gain as it knows, is simply you, Holly, our beautiful Soham Rose. Thank you for listening, guys. We'll be back next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.